why do we think that the path to love is, is knowing more when it seems like the path to power is knowing more and that that power, that control, is actually anti-loving according to the Jesus-shaped love that I want to pursue. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm your host, Andy Dixon, and it's a pleasure to have you along for this episode, whether it's your first or your 53rd. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are making a difference in the world in some way, or as I like to say, people who are bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. For those who aren't aware, um, each episode finishes with a karakia, or a prayer, which is in Te Reo Māori, the language of uh, Māori who are the indigenous people here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The karakia is what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, and I end with it simply because at its heart, the prayer expresses a desire that heaven would be found on earth. And that's something that I'm all about. I was honoured to have the chance to talk to today's guest, Jared Bias, who has been someone I've listened to and learned from for a number of years now. I first became aware of Jared through the podcast that he runs with his friend Pete Enns, called The Bible for Normal People. They've been having conversations with all sorts of amazing guests for years, bringing a diverse group of voices together and covering a wide range of content with the aim of helping people explore the Bible sometimes in ways that they might not have ever thought about doing before. I've since read some of Jared's writing, including his latest, Jonah for Normal People, which I 100% recommend. It's easy to read, it's short, but it's hugely helpful in demonstrating how to read certain kinds of texts while letting go of the demands that some of us were taught we had to place on the text. We talk about that in this conversation today. We also talk about what drove Jared's faith to shift and what he sees differently now from the Christianity that he grew up with. We talk about his books, the podcast, of course, and also his Choctaw Nation heritage and how that shapes how he sees the world. This is episode 53 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Jared Bias. Welcome to the podcast, Jared Bias. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, a number of our listeners will have heard of you, um, but some of them won't. So do you want to just give us a little bit on on who you are, um, where you're from? Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I live just north of Philadelphia and was a pastor for a number of years as well as a professor and then started uh, the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Uh, I almost said The Bible for Normal Pete. Because it's not that normal. We're trying to normalize them. Yeah, yeah. Um, But uh, the Bible for normal people with Pete ends. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been doing since. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And what was your kind of faith background growing up? Yeah, so that's a little more complicated than what I just shared. I uh, grew up in Texas as a as a Southern Baptist and and also charismatic. So kind of equal parts of each one of those. And then went to Liberty University. And uh, oh, I, I kind of skipped a step there because later in high school, I recognized that my faith, I, I gravitated more toward the intellectual side. And so um, in at least in my area of Texas, that really, I lent, you know, lent itself more toward Presbyterianism. So I became Reformed Presbyterian, um, then went to Liberty, uh, which is a, affiliated with the Southern Baptists and uh, study philosophy. And then my faith started shifting just studying philosophy and then went to seminary at at Westminster Seminary up here, right near Philadelphia, which I'd wanted to do since I was in high school. And that's more reformed, kind of Presbyterian affiliated. And then uh, my my faith really shifted there. I went to go to get a PhD in apologetics, which is how to defend your, you know, Christianity, defend your beliefs. Really, it's how to argue well with atheists, basically. And in that, in within a semester, my faith shifted a lot from what I was learning and what I was experiencing in seminary, and I ended up switching over to biblical studies. And then that led me to, instead of being a professor right away, I became a pastor for a number of years in a non-denominational kind of megachurch, evangelical megachurch kind of environment. And then uh, that's my faith kind of continued to shift throughout that time. And culminated in me, you know, getting resigned from that uh, church 
And then I was a, a professor for a while where I could more freely kind of explore what do I actually believe without my paycheck depending on it. And and that kind of is what led to the formation of the Bible for all people. Because that, that is a big deal for some pastors, isn't it? That you've got to keep believing what your church believes or your paycheck is at risk. Yeah, and I don't even think it's really conscious. I think it's often subconscious that you you don't even allow yourself to go there because you kind of under the surface realize all these things are at stake, whether it's relationships, paychecks, um, networks, community, um, a lot. One of your recent guests was another New Zealander, actually, uh, David Farrier, um, talking about the mega church space. And um, so what, what was your kind of experience of being in that space and then looking back on that and going, you know, were there things that were really healthy, things that were really unhealthy? What was that like for you? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I think sometimes when I talk to uh, people and they're maybe more progressive, they'll, you know, joke about, hey, how was your time at Liberty? And by and large, I'm like, it was a good experience. Like I had a pretty good experience with it. And, And I would say similar to being at the church, when I first got there, there was a reason I was attracted to it. That was my style of, you know, church. And um, a lot of good things happened. I just think that um, there was just a lot of dysfunctional leadership and and also just my beliefs shifted. So that it just was incompatible on some level at some point. And when I started seeing that those beliefs were hurting people and excluding people, I think that was the one thing, and, and I think it does expand out into a lot of megachurches, is there's this uh, facade of inclusivity. All are welcome here. It's a place for everyone to belong. Like these are the catchphrases, but they don't realize that there's an asterisk there. There it, restrictions do apply, and often the very people who need the restrictions not to apply are the ones who get left out. And and I didn't. I did not like that at all. Yeah, interesting. Actually, as you say that, I'm thinking actually that you could take out the word mega church and just put in church and that right i mean it's not just yep. mega churches it's, it's across the board that we we all get a way of i guess thinking what we think and believing what we believe and often we don't realize how that impacts other people yeah so what was that journey like for you and your family when you you started realizing that things were shifting that this was no longer compatible was that like a what the heck god kind of moment or you know was it like yay in your adventure or somewhere in between? Yeah, I don't know. I've never been one to be like, oh no, God, what's happening? It is more, okay, let's take a deep breath and let's reframe it. Let's see what it's like to, to think of it as, as an adventure, you know? And it, it did, it precipitated us moving across the country when we had just had, uh, I think my daughter was three months old and we moved across the country so I could go teach. And, um, and we had two other kids who were three and two. So we had three, two and a newborn and, uh, yeah, we packed up all our stuff and moved across the country. And it was, you know, it's also, I actually, it's funny that you say that because it just gave me a, uh, a memory whenever a pastor leaves at our church, they would, you know, have a special service, not a special service, but a special part of the service and thank you. And, and anybody who wants to come say their goodbyes could come. I would, you know, stood at the front and people would come up and, one of the people, many of the people, and this is maybe me being a little, uh, you know, I think when we, when our faith shifts, oftentimes we get, um, we get more, we're more explicit. We have a little rougher edges. We feel the need to kind of say things out loud that, you know, to help kind of establish us. I think we're just the, the edges are a little rougher. Um, you know, life hasn't maybe smoothed them out over the years. And so when you're kind of you know, you just have that kind of uh, fire in the belly about this thing, whatever it happens to be, like this new belief that I hold. So I think I was a little bit, I was a little bit uh, rougher than I needed to be. But somebody came up and said something like, well, we're really going to miss you, Pastor Jared, but we know God um, has a great plan for you. And you're, you know, basically painted a picture like it was not my choice to leave. What was, what were we all to do? God wanted me to leave. And so that's what's happening. And Given the circumstances, I did have a lot to say in it. And so I actually, in that moment, I said, I actually, and it, again, it may be wrong of me, not the right time to like say this, but I, I just kind of said, well, actually, um, we're, I'm, I'm making this choice. Like, I, I think it's time for me to move on. There was a lot of things going on that just there's incompatibilities. And I think I, I wish everyone well, but 
you know, let's not blame God for me leaving. And she was like very taken aback. And, but, but again, I think it was to, it, it was me trying to take responsibility for these things in my life. Because I think for a lot of these big decisions, it is a like, God, what are you doing? It's like, well, what, what did other people do? What did I do? Like, what's the circumstance here? And that doesn't negate the theological implications. I was just talking to someone the other day about, you know, when we talk about uh, the, say, the the split in the Hebrew Bible between the North Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, the Bible has two different, there's a geopolitical reason for that. In, and then there is a theological reason for that. And we have the same with the exile. There is a political reason, like, well, Babylon's coming in and they're just wiping everyone out. That's not, like, it's not magic. The superpowers coming in and taking you out. But then there's a theological reason. Well, it's also because you are not following the Deuteronomic Code. You're not following the law of God. And you're going to be punished because Deuteronomy says if you don't follow the law, you're going to be punished. And so this is how it is. And so we have to, I think, as Christians grapple with that those are not either or biblically. Those can be both and. There can be, I did choose to leave. And and I think we just have to, I needed to do a better job. And I, I think a lot of Christians could do a better job just taking responsibility for the choices we make, or at least seeing that there are a lot of factors at play in the things that happen in the world. It's not, it's not always magic. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, going back to my own experience of, of being made redundant when I was, I was an associate pastor. So I didn't choose to leave, but I still was trying to say to people actually like, cause, cause people had this idea that, well, if, if the elders had decided that, then that was the will of God. Right. And, and I was like, Oh, do you know what? I think the elders decided that because they, in in their prayer and in their, you know, they're trying to do the best they can, came to the decision that that was the best thing. Right. And and that that is their decision. And so my take on it was actually, I think the will of God is not, should Andy go or should Andy stay, but that the decision is made in the heart of, you know, what's the best for people and, you know, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that... And, um, but yeah, people, people struggled with that. And, and also people had a real want to compare things. And so I got a lot of, oh, you know, there's something better coming. And it's like, mm-hmm. uh, what does it have to be better? You know, actually there's been a whole lot of amazing stuff about this last season. I'm not going to compare them, <laughs> you know, that was what it is. This is what it is. Um, but yeah, again, people just feel like they need to say something to make it better maybe, or, I don't know. It just, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the times we don't have the the theology that will hold up this awkward moment. Yeah. That's a great way of saying it. Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. And you, you said it better. I think we don't, we, we lack the theological language to handle disappointment and tragedy and things not working out. And so we only have one script and it's a script that doesn't fit those circumstances. Yeah. Yes. So you're, you're shifting faith, you're, um, especially what you were saying about noticing that people were excluded. You know, is that the sort of stuff that then led to you writing your book, Love Matters More? The Love Matters More was a culmination of my whole experience within uh, more of a fundamentalist evangelical tradition, where what I noticed as I got older, and I think, I hope wiser, but definitely softer, I started to recognize that the, the Bible paints the goal of the Christian life to be love. And I had always been taught implicitly that the goal of the Christian life is actually to know more than anyone else. It was to be right. That was the goal. It, 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 we would say it was love, but when I started to actually look back at the practices, the programs, the services, the people that – the systems, the people we put in leadership, the people we put in front, it was all about privileging a head knowledge about Jesus or about God or about theology. I was kind of a jerk when I was younger. But I kept being invited to speak at things. I kept being, like, even as a teenager, I was asked to lead adult Bible studies. Because why? What qualification did I have? I was articulate, and I was smart, and I knew the ABC of of theological discourse. That's why I got, and so the whole system was skewed to being right, 
And then we had, that was the internal. And then the external uh, was we have this culture war going on and the best way to win the culture war is to be right. Like, so when someone comes to you and says, why don't you listen to, you know, explicit lyric music or why don't you watch rated R movies? Like I had to be able to like, I needed to know the right answer. That was the key. And so, and then on the flip side of that, I started seeing that the people who I thought was who, who best mirrored or modeled the gospel were not being promoted. They were not being put up front. And I just felt like that was a complete reversal of what Jesus was about. And so that, that started my own journey of looking inward at me and all of the ways that I had hurt people through my life by trying to be right, by trying to get ahead. And, and frankly, it doesn't even have to be that nefarious. It really often was because I did think that was the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do was to convince people they were wrong because at the end of the day, if you're wrong about some, some things, you spend eternity in hell. And so it's really important that you get it right. Yeah. As you were talking, I was even thinking of in my growing up in the same kind of evangelical world, even evangelism was about, hey, they don't know the right stuff. Mm-hmm. We know. So we're all good, but we need to make sure they know. Like now, I look back at some of the stuff that we got taught in terms of how to go and approach complete strangers, and I just cringe because it's like, well, oh man, let's go and first of all, let's trick them into having a conversation with me by pretending it's not mm-hmm. about Christianity. And now that we've tricked them, now let's tell them that they're horrible people and that we've got the answers. It's like, oh man. That's pretty arrogant. <laughs> yeah. So you went on, like you say, to to be part of the Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns. How did that actually come about? Well, it started 10 years ago now, actually right right 10 years ago, when uh, we published Bible uh, Genesis for Normal People together. So I was, I was teaching, Pete was teaching, I was teaching out in Arizona, he was teaching here in Pennsylvania. And he reached out about a book that he had some notes on, but you know it wasn't finished, and would I help? And I said, yeah, if we can co-author it, let's do that. And so we started working on this book together, and we published it, um, Genesis for Normal People. And then fast forward three years later, uh, I had moved back to Pennsylvania at that point. Did you know each other before that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Pete was my, my professor at Westminster. Ah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So we had connected there, and we had gone through similar experiences. He was getting resigned from his position at Westminster at the same time I was leaving the church. So we were we were wrestling in some practical existential ways together of like, what does this mean for our paycheck? Like, we can't do anything else. Like, this is like what we're trained to do. What do you do if you can't do this? And if our, you know, beliefs are shifting, will we find a place that are are going to find these things acceptable? Like, what? Where do you go? And so. We were really wrestling with that. That that was kind of the, the catalyst of our friendship. And then that's where it led to a few years later writing Genesis for Normal People together. And then a few years later um, starting the podcast because I think we both have a heart for two things. Well, we have a, a, a an interest in biblical scholarship. I think we're both just so curious and whatever for whatever reason, our personalities are bent toward learning about all that stuff. But I think we have a real heart for teaching people and and helping people understand what it is that we've learned, you know, that's all we're doing is pass along what, what we learned. And, and so that's really all came together in the Bible for normal people. You basically sounds like you're telling my story in some ways, because I've, you know, done the theology training and biblical studies and loved it. And, and, um, you have those moments. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just that I'm an Enneagram five, but I have those moments where you something that you're studying or something that someone tells you just unlocks something and it's like, oh my goodness, everybody has to know this. And so then I start telling people and they're like, oh yeah, cool. It's like, no, you don't get it. This changes the whole world. (laughs) But yeah, which is, I guess I love what you guys do because you're putting it out there and, um, and you know, people can take it or not or whatever. Um, But yeah, I mean, you've, you've had over a million downloads on the podcast. So obviously people are listening. Mm -hmm. What what do you love most about it? I love the, uh, I mean, ultimately what I really love is the community. And that's why I love hearing stories from people and then to see more and more churches crop up where this 
open-handed theology. All theology has an adjective, but that doesn't threaten us. Like it doesn't threaten who we are. A true inclusivity. These churches are cropping up more and more. And and to be able to see pastors finding congregations who who follow that uh, line of thinking and congregations to find pastors and people finding each other and that that community part truly is. Um, important to me in a way that I didn't think it would be when we started. So it's been a little bit of a surprise as well. Yeah, cool. You mentioned just then all theology has an adjective. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Because it's one of the kind of the key parts of the behind the scenes stuff of, of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a Phil Scott kind of a I would say hermeneutical, uh, which is just a way of saying how we interpret the Bible um, principle which is to say that that all theology has an adjective, and that comes from when we were in seminary, and probably for well, most of the last few hundred years when you're doing, you're going to do theology, they would have classes, and it would be like uh, African-American theology. It would be feminist theology. But then whenever you did like white European, white, you know, man theology, there was no adjective. It wasn't like, White European theology. That they no no seminary had a course called White European Theology. That was just called Theology One Hundred and One. And so, yeah. just recognizing our own social location and and realizing that what we grew up thinking was objective, once for all, absolute truth theology, was actually coming from a particular context. And it's why do we privilege that and call it theology with no adjective? And then we have African-American theology. Well, you could do like the real theology or you could do like African-American theology. And it, realizing all theology has an adjective. It all comes from a certain context. It all comes from – theology is the conversation of who we are in our particularity as it intersects with who God is. And you can't help but then have that be colored by your particular context. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed someone a few – episodes ago, um, who's Māori and is doing uh, some study into Māori and Pacifica theology, um, or p- particularly like Christian, like looking at looking at how their Māoriness and, and the Pacifica kind of area influences how they interpret scripture and stuff. And so I, I made a point of saying on that episode, you know, I, I want to talk to you about indigenous theology, but not as opposed to ordinary theology you know it's so easy when you're in that space particularly as a white male um, like Mm -hmm. I am to not even notice that that's a reality but yeah you guys talk a lot about decentering yourselves what does that mean for you and what does it actually look like in practice well one it came from a fundamental realization of of that of that all theology does have an adjective if you don't believe that it's going to be very hard to decenter whatever your particular context is, it's going to be hard to decenter it because you honestly think it's just the way it is. So why would you decenter it? That's that makes no sense. Um, so first, I think it's coming to that humility that we don't have a grasp on absolute truth, which is I know a big ask for a lot of people. It's it's scary and it's humbling, um, and of course people think it's not true, but I would differ on that. And and so I think that's that's one thing uh, that is required is a, is a deep humility about what we know and what we don't know, based on who we are, in our location and our context. So we talk a lot about context, um, and I think that's an important important part of it. And then secondly, after that recognition, it's it's making sure that we are getting input and output from other sources than just the ones that reinforce our position in our context. So for us, that means making sure we have a wide diversity of people who do theology from their particular context. And in a way that's not comparative um, to, you know, systematic theology as it's been taught, you know, in the West, it just let it stand, let it be what it is and let those voices uh, come alongside what you've heard, challenge what you've heard, Maybe reinforce it at times, but let that be a conversation amongst a diverse group of voices rather than the, you know, oftentimes if you look at the syllabus of a seminary, it will be all white dudes. Yeah. 
everything you read, everything you interact with. And that's just not, that's just not true. It doesn't have integrity for what's actually going on in the world. And I love that you guys quite openly learn things during the podcast. You know, that someone will say something, you're like, oh, wow, I've never thought of that. Actually, I just listened to the, I just listened to the one yesterday while I was running about um, archaeology and, and toilets. Um, and Pete, Pete going, oh, I've never thought of Jesus going to the toilet. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, that's not like going to change your theological worldview, but you know, there was some awesome stuff in that episode that went, oh man, they are in a time and place and the world was different and I can't just read that how I want, you know? And yet one thing I love about what you do is that as well as going the stuff that I've heard over the years of we've got to get back into the original context, you know, we've got to get, which, which is super important, you know, um, and I've really valued that. And, you know, my master's thesis was all based around the, the few hundred years before Jesus and figuring out what they thought eternal life was and all that kind of stuff. And which I just buzzed out on, um, and a whole lot of people are rolling their eyes right now. But one, one thing you do is go, actually, we have to be aware of our own context as well. Hmm. And that, actually the way that we believe things and what's gone on in the past few hundred years actually influences how we how we do it as well. Do you want to just comment a little bit on that? Yeah, it, well, it's just recognizing that when we say we have to learn the original context, we don't learn in some abstract way. Yeah. We learn as 21st century blank, blank, blank. Fill in the blanks with your particular adjectives. That is our social location. It is our context. And how we learn, the filter that I'm learning through is that filter. I'm going to pick up on certain, I'm going to emphasize certain things. I'm going to, you know, kind of selective listening. Like I didn't, well, I don't, that's not that important. This is really important based on my experiences and based on my context. And the only way we can, uh, we just have to be aware of that first. And if we're not, we're going to be, we're going to be directed in a certain way and we're not going to realize it. And I think that's the dangerous part is when we have this once for all universal absolute truth idea. And guess what? I tend to always have it in some sense. You know, the people who espouse absolute truth as this thing are often the ones that say that they have it. Yeah, right. And so there's just no space there to become aware of our own filters. And I think that's incredibly important because we don't read the Bible in 21st century America or New Zealand, the way that they would have read it in 16th century France, or the way that St. Augustine would have read it in 4th century North Africa. Those are different contexts, and we can't help it. So I think we have to get out of this mindset that somehow one day we're going to overcome it. The only way we overcome it is when we're not human, because we can't transcend our context, unfortunately. Um, has your philosophy training background been a huge part of that for you oh so yeah very helpful uh, absolutely to see the because philosophers are, are good at that they're good at sort of pointing out the the context that we find ourselves in so they're kind of not getting lost in the weeds picking you know kind of pick up your head do you see kind of the big picture of what we're doing here and that's been incredibly helpful one thing i've also picked up listening to the podcast is that you know you talk about you know, being white male or whatever, but you've also, you're also Choctaw. Yeah. How much connection do you have to your Choctaw heritage? Um, is it something you've always, it's always been a part of life or is it something you've thought about more recently? What's that been like? It's, it's complicated. It's definitely always been a part of my life. Um, I mean, my grandmother and my grandmother's very Choctaw uh, and my mom, very proud to be Choctaw. I mean, my grandmother and mom live there. Um, the Choctaw Nation on the lands. Um, and so, so it's always been a part, but it's weird growing up in an environment where it's almost like be proud of this at home, but we don't, we don't talk about it too much outside of that um, because it's not always acceptable. Um, and so it's sort of like basically if you my parents wanted me to have the most successful life I could have and being Choctaw isn't one of those things that you want to really highlight if you're going to be as successful as you can be. And so 
it was a weird thing for me to, I feel like it wasn't ever explicit to like hide that, but it just felt implicit. And then as an adult, I would say in the last 10 years, recognizing I can be proud of it and talk about it and feeling free to do that has been very liberating, but it also has, yeah, it has some weird feelings attached to it as well. Um, and, and being someone who's not, you know, fully Choctaw also wanting to respect what, what is my space as someone who's very, uh, you know, who easily passes as someone who's just a white man. Um, I, I want to be respectful of that too. So it's been very complicated for me, but I would say it definitely has been a part of my culture and, and I, I, want that to continue and I, I want my kids to understand that from a young age and be more pr- feel free to be more proud of that I mm. think as you've gone through that last 10 years of going actually I can be proud of this is it something that's affected your theology at all yeah 100% um, and, and it, it's been a good that's also been helpful because it allows where I am in my faith, I have more flexibility to allow it to influence my faith. And I think that's a really helpful thing. So, I mean, particularly the creation myths in the Choctaw, uh, you know, our Choctaw history has been, I've found a lot of connection to those creation myths and just the um, respect for land and these things have definitely shifted my faith in a much more the the interconnectedness of all things like these kind of themes that you'll get in in Choctaw and, and native in general uh, understandings of the world will have definitely influenced how I practice my faith mm. as I've experienced more of Maori culture I've realized that actually that their way of understanding the world is actually a lot more similar to the authors of the Bible than my white Western heritage. Um, you know, and I'm proud of my white Western heritage, but it's also going, hey, actually, I think you've got something here that helps unlock stuff for me. And then, of course, I'm trying not to, you know, just colonize it because um, right. we've already done that a million times mm-hmm. um, and we don't want to keep doing that. But, but yeah, like you say, it's got that unlocking of the, you know, the creation myths, the... And and when we say myths, some of our listeners will be going, actually, what do you mean by that term? Um, do you want to explain a little bit, like how you see that? Yeah. So in academic circles, I think in in common language, we talk about myths and we oppose those to facts. So it's like it's a fact or is it a myth? But that's a, it's much more nuanced in literature to talk about myth as a meaning making story for a particular culture or society. So a myth is, it could be true, it could have parts that are true, it could be completely fabricated. That doesn't really speak to what a myth is. It is this important um, story that has a lot of meaning. It makes It continues to bring meaning to a culture or a society. And it's one of the reasons why, for instance, when you go to a church in 2022 in Alabama, USA, you might hear someone preach on Genesis 1 um, or Genesis 2 in this meaningful way. That's because it's a myth. It, 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 it still gives meaning. And so um, oftentimes there's other characteristics to a myth in terms of not completely like historically situated. There, there's, there's other components to it. And so I'm not also saying, you know, it's, it's not one or the other. It's just a category for literature that doesn't really tell us whether something happened or didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, again, that was one of the things that I wrestled with for years going, actually, I, you know, I've been told to take this stuff literally, but it doesn't kind of seem like I should be. And, but how does that fit with what they were trying to say? And um, I've probably told the story on the podcast before, but I heard a, a Maori guy, he got asked a question about like, do you guys actually believe all that stuff? You know, those old myths and, you know, from from your culture um and one of the ones in in his particular iwi his his tribe was that they um they reached Aotearoa they reached New Zealand um on the back of the birds you know mm-hmm. that there's a story about them coming here on the back of the birds and like do you actually believe that and he was like well what literally happened well probably my ancestors followed the flight path of the birds because they knew that if they were flying somewhere that they had to they had to be land eventually. So they probably did that. 
so did we come here on the back of the birds? Yeah, sure. Right. I was like, oh my goodness, that that makes so much sense. <laughs> you know, that it's it's true. Being true and being literal aren't the same thing. Right. And having containing truth and the entire story being factually accurate, that's not the same thing. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, which which brings me to another important part of of your recent journey, and that's the book of Jonah, um, which again is one of these did it happen, did it not um, kind of things within church culture. Um, you've you've recently released a book called Jonah for Normal People: A Guide to the Most Misunderstood Prophet of the Bible. Of all the things that you could have chosen to write about, why Jonah? Well, almost for the exact thing we just talked about. To recognize Jonah was a flashpoint for this conversation when I was growing up. When I heard sermons on Jonah, it was almost always an attempt to defend or justify the historicity of the account of a man named Jonah getting swallowed by a whale to defend God's honor that God can do miraculous things. And those liberals who are trying to tear down everything in our culture are going to tell you that it didn't actually happen. And here's why we think it did. And as though that was some important point to make. And for me, my faith, the way I understand the Bible and the way I understand faith and just culture in general is that that's not the case. We, we don't treat anything else in literature the way we treat the Bible. No one's saying, uh, Tolkien, hey, if that didn't actually happen, what, what good is it? If, if, if Bilbo didn't actually <laughs> yeah. go on this journey, why are we even talking about it? But we make that case with the Bible for some reason. In an effort, I think, to be right and to talk about it in a certain way, we, we actually undermine the value of the Bible. Because for me, I missed so much opportunity to learn valuable lessons about life from the Bible because my eye was taken off that ball and put onto the most important thing is to get down into the weeds about how you can defend the historicity and literalness of this text. And so Jonah is just a nice small, brief entry point into that conversation. How can something be true and not historically accurate? Yeah. And I think it's an important conversation because if you don't have a category for that, I think you're going to miss a huge amount of meaning and substance from the Bible. In the book, you write, when interpreters decide beforehand what a biblical book can or can't be, it can be difficult to see the text for what it is which kind of highlights what you were just saying, but just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, again, when we come, the com this all comes for full circle with what we were talking about earlier about context. So I came to the Bible already formed, probably from my mother's womb. That's a, that's overstatement, but it is like coming out into the world. I came with a preconceived idea that I got inherited from my tradition, my parents, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God can contain no mistakes, the guide for all things, uh, not just for life and salvation, but historical, um, scientific, medical, technological. It is the grounding for everything that's true in the world. And that's a particular way of viewing the Bible. And so I already came to the text with a, with a strong conviction that nothing in the text could contradict that framework. Not only that, let's go down even further, where there were these more nuanced assumptions that were made around these reading strategies, I'll call them. So, for instance, one of those reading strategies was, you want to read your Bible in the most miraculous way you can. So, you want to highlight, when you can, the miracles of God, that God does extraordinary things outside of the normal course of how the world works. Because it displays God's power, and it also helps you feel like you're right. Like you can defend certain things in certain ways. And so my great, my favorite example of this is in the Exodus story, where the Bible actually says that there was a an east wind that came to separate the the Yom Suf, the the Reed Sea or the Red Sea, 
But if, and I used to do this because I thought it was funny, I would point that out. I would just say, well, you know, God's hands didn't come down and separate the Red Sea. That was just the east wind. And the the amount of vitriol and the amount of anger I would get because I am, you know, you are just one of, you're anti-supernaturalist. You're just trying to take all the miracles out of the, I'm like, it literally just says it. It says it in the Bible. So I think that's a great example where the framework almost crowds out the Bible itself because it says, even if it says it in the text, we have, we have like this cognitive dissonance because we've been programmed to see what the Bible is and then made the Bible fit into what we were told that it had to be. I mean, that links to, to one of the other quotes that are, stood out to me from the book where you said, perhaps figuring out what God is up to in the world isn't as simple as we were led to believe. Um, perhaps these books, and you're talking about Jonah, Ecclesiastes and Job, are honest in their mystery. I guess, what's your experience of embracing the mystery side of reading the Bible, um, and how has that changed things for you? I think it's tied to that humility piece. I think there's two things. One, it's tied to the humility, where it's okay not to know everything, which I think is such an important piece to get to in a faith journey, uh, because it allows you to explore deep questions, come to new understandings. So that humility piece, I think, is, is big. But I think the second piece was a shift in my faith to the practical instead of the factual. If, if faith isn't just about getting all the facts right, but it's actually about how we live our life, I found not only can books like Job and Ecclesiastes be an engine for action, for loving my neighbor in better and more nuanced and more understanding ways— it might actually be a better engine than some of those other ways that I've gone about it. Because again, if, if not to get too philosophical, but if we think knowledge is power. And so if, if, if we're resting our faith on what we know, that's leading to this, this power where the Jesus shaped narrative is about how love is, is decentering and it's giving up the power. And so why do we think that the path to love is is knowing more when it seems like the path to power is knowing more and that that power, that control is actually anti-loving according to the Jesus-shaped love that I want to pursue? And so the mystery actually facilitates breaking away from that fact-based faith toward an action-based, love-based faith, in my experience. Which I find fascinating because it's not that you've then gone, oh, well, so I don't need to keep reading the Bible. You know, actually, you've still got a life that's dedicated to Scripture and to understanding, um, but with a whole lot of different tools and a whole lot of different outcomes than maybe what it, it was for you in the past. Yeah, because maybe the goal, isn't, the, the goal isn't understanding. We need understanding. And that's where I think people get, you know, when I wrote Love Matters More, I got a lot of feedback of like, well, you don't care about truth. It's like, you missed the whole point. So that's why it's called Love Matters More, not Love Matters Only. Like, Yeah, yeah. It's, we still need the understanding. But if, if understanding is the goal, then we, we, I think, run afoul of, of not keeping love at the forefront. But if, if love is the goal, you know, and, and coming back to mystery, again, if, if understanding is the goal, mystery is in opposition to that. But if love in the goal, is the goal, then mystery can be a facilitator of that. And it doesn't actually understand and continually trying to understand so that I can love better feels to me to be a, a fuller and, and more loving path than get to the understanding and somehow that magically just turns into loving action. I don't know how it works, but I just trust, you know, that yeah. If I just read my Bible a hundred times, I'm going to be a more loving human being. It's like, yeah. that makes no sense to me. And and it makes no sense to the people who aren't feeling loved by you interacting with them either. Um, right. I, I find that really fascinating that, um, like you say, if if it's all about knowing, if it's all about proving others wrong, then, you know, they're, they're left feeling not loved. And right. so what what is the fruit of that? You know, and that's what been one of the huge shifting points for me in my faith is is going well, actually, what is the fruit of what we're doing? You know, yes, there's some some really good stuff, but there's some bits that we actually just need to prune off here 
um, you know, taking the lead from Jesus and going, actually, there's some bits here we, we just don't need. Um, and maybe there's some bits that actually are flourishing over here that we've been trying to chop off, you know, so. But I think that even that view requires a certain level of humility to say that our tradition is a living tradition, that it continues to grow and it continues to change. And the parts that grow and change in ways that aren't loving, we have to prune off. And the ways that it is, we have to allow to flourish. And that takes that humility, again, to see that how you practice your faith isn't 100% right. Yeah. I think one of the things that struck me listening to you and Pete is with that humility comes the ability to not just be waging war against people who disagree with you. You know, that it's easy to go from this sort of fundamental belief that this is how we should be Christian and then things shift for you and you, you now have a different idea. So you just wage war on the people who believe what you used to believe. Um, what's that journey been like for you in terms of have you felt like you need to campaign against that or is it just about doing what you're doing and seeing what happens? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it not to keep harping on these, but it, it's, Pete, Pete talks about this a lot, that our need for certainty. And I think we got to address that. I think we have deep insecurities. We have fears. Those are, the, again, those are the things that aren't solved or resolved by knowing more stuff. That That requires the deep inner work of what is that hole in the soul? Where does it come from? Because it manifests in lashing out when people confront me or disagree with me or when someone threatens me unintentionally by disagreeing with my theological conviction. What, what is it that's going on underneath that? And again, the, the unhelpful, unreflective answer is nothing's wrong. They're just wrong. I'm right. And I'm defending the right thing. Would, wouldn't you be mad? To, like it's a righteous anger. Like I'm defending the truth. And in my experience, that's not true. That's, that's a cover for deeper things going on um, that needs to be that needs to be addressed and and figured out um, and so that for me that the letting go of that fundamentalist anger or the the reactivity is more of an emotional psychological journey than it is some intellectual journey well I feel like we could keep chatting about stuff all day because we've just kind of scratched the surface of a whole bunch of stuff. But obviously people can interact with you through the Bible for Normal People, listening to that, the books that you've written. Oh, and also actually if if people don't know about it, you'll be going to be speaking at Evolving Faith Conference later this year, Yep, which is just a fantastic space. I've had um, Jeff Chu on the podcast who helps facilitate that and um, yep. is an amazing human being as well. And... Um, yeah, so so as we wrap up, I just want to say, you know, thank you for your humility to wrestle with all of this stuff and then put it out there in a way that is inviting and allows people to to wrestle with it too, allows people to um, hear stuff that they wouldn't normally hear. Because, I mean, that's a huge part of my heart is going, hey, all this stuff that gets taught in Bible colleges or whatever around the world, a lot of it doesn't end up back in the church, you know, back in normal people you know and so you guys are doing a fantastic job of of bringing some of that conversation to us normal people and um thank you for the the heart that you do that with thank you for uh the way that you model the fact that we can engage scripturally but love can be more important than facts um and so yeah thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth Thank you. And, th and right back at you. Thank you for the humility and willing to have the conversation. I think it's just having more and more spaces where people feel not alone uh, in, the, in these questions and in this journey. So thank you. Hello. There was so much in that conversation. In many ways, we were just scratching the surface. But if you connected with what Jared had to say, definitely check out the Bible for Normal People and Jared's writing. And I'll put links for both of those in the show notes. A shift that I've wrestled with that Jared articulated so well is that shift from a desire to be right to a desire to be loving. 
And what a huge difference that can make in the world if we're prepared to even contemplate that. So Jared, thank you for who you are and for sharing a little of that with us today. Here is a blessing for you. Jared, as you raise your kids alongside your wife, may they too know without any shadow of a doubt that love matters more. And as you live that out as a family, may it both unite you and radiate from you to those who you encounter. May your books continue to shape and inspire others, whether they have stumbled across their words or whether they've sought them out, that they would know that they have the freedom to ask their questions, hold their doubts, and to even change their mind if necessary. May you and Pete continue to be encouraged and filled by the conversations that you record to present to others, that it would never be a chore but would be light and life to you both, just as it is for so many around the world. May you continue to hear stories of how your work and your commitment to what you share is making a difference in the lives of others in positive ways. And may you know that that difference that you make goes well beyond what you will ever know. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to business development and impact specialist Sal Lee. Sal works with companies who want to make a difference in the world, helping them figure out the best ways that they can do that while also benefiting the business so that it's a win for everybody. We talk about so much from business and social impact to uh, friends with tumours and the fallout of that for friends and family to colonisation and how that even affects how we've learned to do business. It's another powerful conversation. I hope you'll join me. Until then. Me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei E taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Muro mato hara me mato hoki e muru nei e o te hunga e hara na kia mato aua hoki mato e kawia kia fakawia e ngari fakorangia mato i te kino ah.